University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. As we inch closer and closer to Christmas, we are recognizing just how much we need this season in a very challenging year. We're in our series, Noel, Hope to All Who Experienced 2020. When I think about Christmas, I think of Christmas carols, and one of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. I love that part where it it repeats itself on and on again. Repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. What does joy have to do with Christmas? What What is joy in general? And the first thought that comes to mind is that just people that are overly happy all the time. That sounds exhausting to me. If you're not naturally a happy person, there's always that one person, that one friend you have in your life that, that you really love to death, but you just want to say, can you take a sip of just calm down the bubbliness for just a few moments? I don't have the energy for all that. As one author put it, a, per, a pessimist gets nothing but a pleasant surprise, an optimist nothing but unpleasant. And yet the Bible talks a lot about joy. In fact, the Bible, between the word rejoice and joy, appear over 500 times in the Bible. Now, when you compare that 500 to the 136 times it talks about believing, the 221 times it talks about love, the 121 times it talks about sin, and the 118 times it talks about grace, the Bible talks about joy a lot. One of the most curious declarations of joy comes from Psalm 104, stating that wine brings joy to the human heart. Oil makes the face shine, and bread strengthens the heart. So there's that. In fact, a majority of the time the word rejoice appears in the Old Testament. We, we read it in the narratives of the Hebrew people when they were enslaved, seeking freedom, struggling to worship the right God and establish a kingdom. The bombardment and dominance of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, The Romans, along with exile, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, not exactly the circumstances to rejoice in the Lord and to find joy, is it? The word Paul uses for joy is found in places like the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, it's the word kara, which, which means gladness or recognize grace. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? So why is joy associated with Advent? Well, for this, we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The sixth month is referring to another miracle pregnancy in the New Testament, that of Elizabeth giving birth to a boy who will be named John. You see, her husband, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were very old, and yet they desired to have a child. And God heard their prayers, 
And not only did God give them a child, but this child would grow up to be the one who would preach to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. So Elizabeth in her six months of pregnancy, again, Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel who went and visited her is now coming with a similar message to someone else. And Gabriel is sent to the town of Nazareth. If you were a first century Israelite reading this passage, you would have probably snickered or laughed out loud. Nazareth was a no-name hick town in the backcountry of Galilee. Nazareth was nothing. It's not even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Even among uh, the, the, the various passages we have, you don't find the name Nazareth. In fact, the, the ancient historic uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus didn't even mention it in all of his writings. It's not recorded in any place because nothing ever important had come from Nazareth. Early on in Jesus' ministry, when a man finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, the man remarks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was nothing. So why is Luke bringing us to this hick village? And of all people, in all the no-name villages of the world, Mary would have been probably the most insignificant figure of all. The images we have of, of Mary throughout history is of this 30-year-old woman with perfect hair, no dirt under her nails, and a golden crown or a halo above her head. But the truth is, Mary was from an unremarkable town. She was a 13, 14-year-old virgin pledged to be married to a carpenter named Joseph. Don't think glitz and glamour. Think peasant girl, peasant dressed, pulling water from a well, out collecting firewood for her parents' home. Think of her being illiterate and not having any perspective of any great heights in her life. Think of a girl who has dirty feet because she walked around the dirt roads with sandals on. She wasn't this polished figure, but she was hunched over at work. So she was pledged to be married to Joseph. And in this day and age, you were married off at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Can you imagine that? Joseph was a, a poor carpenter. He lived in Nazareth in a simple town, and yet he comes from this kingly line of David. The marriage would have been drawn up in a deed in exchange for money for the groom. This was done deal for months to come. It was a very simple and bewildering question. How in the world did Mary find favor with God? How did a poor teenage girl from an insignificant town in the back country of Galilee, pledged to be married to a poor carpenter, find favor in the eyes of God? It seems so strange when you think about it. She was uneducated. She didn't have a bit of money. Don't you think God would have picked someone with a bit more experience? And Mary stands before this angel that's just told her that she's found favorite in the eyes of the God of creation, and all she can do is just stand there with her mouth open and say nothing. And it says this in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? 
The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who has said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I find it so hilarious that twice Gabriel, the angel, has encountered someone, and twice he's had to remind the people not to be afraid. I mean, wouldn't you? (laughs) This guy appears out of nothing. This radiant being is standing right in front of you. How else would someone respond? And the angel proceeds to bring Mary the typical news and the headlines of things going on in the world and the latest fashion trends that are going on in Jerusalem. No, the dude drops the B-bomb, the baby bomb on her. And even though you're a virgin, Mary, you're going to have a son, the angel told her. Mary's response should have been, excuse me, come again, say that again, but this time say it really slow. He tells her that she's going to give birth to a boy, and she's supposed to name him Jesus. It's the, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. His name literally will mean why he was born. And the angel said that he will be the son of the Most High, meaning he'll be the son of God. It's so easy for us to look back at this story with 2,000 years of distance to see just how privileged and honored Mary should have been in this moment. But in the reality is that Mary had every reason to be scared. Let's point out the unfavorable circumstances of this moment. First, some guy wearing white lightning robes is standing in her bedroom. Sounds like the beginning either of a a hidden camera prank or a horror movie. Second, the really white guy tells her that she's pregnant, even though she's never been with a man. And that's not going to go over well with her highly patriarchal Near East context, in which women could be stoned to death for adultery, stoned to death for doing anything out of wedlock, or even being stoned to death for being taken advantage of against her will by another person. Third, do you know... (laughs) What people, we even do this to this day, if someone started walking around and saying that I'm carrying the Son of God, that person would immediately be institutionalized. Imagine all of this coming into Mary's ears as she hears these unpleasant circumstances that she's being interrupted with. And how do you think she should respond? How many of us are truly respond, uh, re, or surprised that Mary's response are, 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 is now, are you crazy? How do you think I'm going to explain this to everyone? A, that I'm pregnant. B, that it's the Son of God. Do you think everyone's just going to say to me, congratulations, Mary, the Son of God, you go, girl. But Mary's response is quite bewildering because she just simply says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. I ain't been with a man. It's almost like she's walking the angel through the birds and the bees conversation. You've got to love this one-liner from the angel, for nothing is impossible with God. Do you want to believe that you are pregnant with the Son of God? A barren old woman can bear a child in her old age. A virgin can receive, conceive Mary. God can enter into human history as a child. Look at what happens in verse 38. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. 
the gospel writer goes on to write a prayerful song for Mary in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extend to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I don't get it. How can Mary rejoice in these circumstances? Sure, the whole giving birth to the Son of God thing is huge. It's a huge honor. However, letting your parents and your town know the news sounds like a bit of an episode from one who flew over the cuckoo's nest. She could be abandoned by her family for this. Her fiancé can have their marriage agreement annulled. She can be publicly shamed for this. She can be stoned for this. She can die for taking on this challenge from God. And yet, Mary rejoices. And yet, Mary's not alone. The Bible is full of people experiencing simultaneous challenge and yet having joy. The narrative of Exodus and Numbers tells us of joy the Hebrew people had as they left the slavery in Exodus, though they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Isaiah the prophet, ministering and wrote during an awful period in the Hebrew people's history known as the exile, when the people were conquered by Babylon and thousands of people ripped away from their homes and subjugated to a foreign empire, and yet Isaiah wrote that the people will return to Zion singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads with gladness and joy overtaking them while sorrow flees away. The Apostle Paul urges the Corinthians to have joy amid their sorrow. Though they are poor, they are rich in having everything despite possessing nothing. Have you ever heard the phrase, you've won the lottery or you hit the jackpot? Of course, it would be really nice to hit the Mega Ball jackpot, especially back in June or July when it was about $22 million. I can't imagine winning that much money. That, that's always a fun question to, to consider. What would you do with the money? Well, after writing a personal check to my favorite pastor and then giving 10% to the church, I'd probably uh, buy a sailboat and venture the seas with, with my family. Did you know that a study found that lottery winners end up worse in the long term? The research found that winners find it more difficult to be happy. The psychology term for this is called hedonistic adaptation. It means that while we might elevate financially or socially or educationally, in tandem our expectations and desires also rise. Therefore, elevating our financial and social and educational standing doesn't satisfy our desires and expectations because those expand and become equally complex. This doesn't mean that we don't try. We try to be happier by acquiring more stuff, more 
education, a bigger house, more expensive cars, connections to social circles, and so on. The hedonistic treadmill is the idea that, that we believe we are moving forward as we progress and getting more, but what we don't realize is that we're merely on a hamster wheel repeating the same pattern again and again. Sometimes the best way to understand something is to talk about what it isn't. Mary's story helps us here because she is under tremendous, difficult, uneasy, dangerous, and uncertain circumstances, and yet she is a person of joy. We can learn from Mary what joy is. It's not the absence of discomfort. It's not the absence of unimaginable physical and relational and communal and spiritual anguish. Joy is not the denial of pain either. We see through Mary, and most importantly, we see through Jesus that grief and sorrow are a part of life. Consider the shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus was weeping over the death of a dear friend, Lazarus, and the grief that his sisters were facing. Jesus was grief-stricken as he struggled with the circumstances he faced on the cross. We learn from Mary that joy is not circumstantial. We see Mary is a person of joy even in the direst of circumstances. Joy is not something that is subject to the circumstances we are facing, as if we can only have joy if things are smooth and easy in our life. In fact, circumstances typically are what rob us of finding joy in our life because they hold us back, they prevent us, they blind us from what we are seeing. Complaining and comparing and control are just the beginning of circumstances that we often create that steal joy from our lives. But here is the good news. There's always going to be someone smarter, better looking, richer, more successful, and better liked than any of us. Except Ken Tipton. When you literally think about Ken Tipton, there can't be anyone wiser or more gracious or more good looking. No one. He's at the pinnacle. There are circumstances that we can create in our mind and our heart that hold us back from joy. These are just the things that joy isn't. So what is joy then? One of the given Christmas stocking staples in our family is chocolate. There's, is there ever really enough chocolate in the world? And according to one study, no, there is never enough chocolate in the world. A two-week study carried out on chocolate consumption with two groups over a two-week period. Group A were allowed to binge on unlimited amounts of chocolate. And after a two-week period, uh, both groups were then given chocolate. Group B was given limited amounts of chocolate. And then at the end of that time, they were given uh, unlimited amount. And what it found from the group was group B reported being uh, treated in higher favor. They had a higher level of happiness. They were in a better mood than group A. And what this tells us is that we are, when we have more of something, it's not always a good thing. And what we think will make us happier isn't always the case. And this may be the best way for us to understand joy. Joy is not the fleeting emotion of happiness. To rise above circumstances, to last longer than fleeting moments, joy must be forged in our soul. Beyond the facade of stuff and social standings and education and experience, 
We are spiritual beings. God created within each of us a soul that connects us to something deeper, our creator, God's creation, and each person around us. And it's in our soul that God shapes and forms something stronger than circumstances or emotional disguise that that we can put on. It goes deeper than a fleeting emotion or a flare of a moment. And since joy is forged in our soul, it's directly correlated with a conscious awareness. Mary was able to see through the challenging nature of her circumstances with a greater awareness of all this meant, not only for herself and for Joseph, but also the entire world. Joy is a conscious awareness of God, God's presence in our lives, God's unseen work around us, and God's leadership before us. Let me repeat that. Joy is a conscious awareness of God, God's presence in our lives, God's unseen work around us, and God's leadership before us. In our journey with God, as we become more attuned to God's voice and word and way, we can see through what we seem to be clinging and clattering in our lives to see that there's something deeper going on here. This is why James can write, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind. Or Peter can write, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. We see this from the example of Jesus, that we can find joy in the most dire of circumstances. Remember the scripture says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is purposefulness in uncertain, uneasy, and unfavorable times because it is a deeper conscious awareness. As one person put it, I don't think of all the misery, but all the beauty that still remains. That one person was a teenage girl who wrote in her diary as she hid away from the Nazis who were hunting her people. Her name was Anne Frank. My wife is, is a genius. That's it. That's all I had to say. I just wanted to get that out there. But she started a few years ago uh, something called the Good Times Jar. And we keep this jar on our kitchen counter in which we write down the good things that happen in our lives in a given year. So throughout the year, if something good happens, we write it down. Then at the end of the year, on New Year's Eve, we take out all the good things out of the jar and we read them together. Psychologists have actually found that the act of writing down or recognizing three things you are thankful for each day elevates our view of life and the world. In fact, a study found that the level of joy within you goes up drastically when we can name our blessings each day. And what's even more interesting is the study found that if we express our gratitude and blessings to those connected to our joy, then our joy goes even more up drastically. And maybe that's the last thing we need to understand about joy, that true joy is shared with others. When we look back at Mary's declaration of joy in verse 46 through 55, 
is that she does recognize the favor that God has brought into her life by choosing her for this task, no matter how difficult the circumstances. But then she recognizes that through her, the vessel by which God is bringing Jesus into this world, that the world will receive joy. She says in verse 52, God is lifting up the humble, filled the hungry with good things. True joy radiates out of our soul into the lives of those around us. And if we are like Jesus, then into the lives of those that we should serve. There's a fascinating declaration from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in which he declares that in the midst of very severe trials, the church overflowing with joy and their extreme poverty well up with rich generosity. Let that sink in for just a second. Joy is not a gift we hold tightly out of scarcity. Instead, it is a gift that multiplies and magnifies when we share it with others. And that's what makes joy even more inexplicable in the most unpleasant of circumstances. So may we truly have joy in our soul. Maybe the only proper thing to do is to repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. As we continue our journey in Advent this morning, as we lit the hope candle last week, this morning we light the candle of joy. I invite you in joining me in reading this responsive reading on the candle lighting found in your worship guide and on the screen. On this second Sunday of Advent, we continue our journey together towards Christmas. We light the candle of joy to give us light for the way. <clears throat> 